Um, good afternoon. It is uh, afternoon. Thank you. It's great to see you all. It is a great joy to gather in church together, and uh, I've been very much looking forward to um, uh, getting into what we're going to think about today. It's good to see people back from holidays and camp and Keswick and different places. One or two other people have gone away this week. Jai's away on camp from today until next Sunday uh, in Derbyshire, uh, so we remember him. Um, last week, uh, some of you will know that we began a new series and uh, we're going to be exploring Ephesians chapter 6 and in particular the part that deals with the armour of God. Um, this is not armour that God wears. Uh, I think the armour of God is a kind of misnomer in a way but this is armour that God gives to individual Christians to wear because we're in a fierce battle. And the idea is of God enabling his people, his believing people, to stand in this epic battle that is raging uh, all around us. Um, let's um, turn then to Ephesians chapter 6 and we'll read uh, some verses together. Page 1177 uh, in the church Bibles. And uh, we'll read from verse 10. Hey, we have some graphics, that's good. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Uh, Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled round your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Well, this is God's word. Uh, where, where are we going? Last week we began, um, before we look at the individual pieces of armour in this little list that make up this weird picture that Paul paints, we're just having two weeks of introduction. So, shall I try this? Hey, look at that. The technology works. Um, 
we've, uh, what, what we're doing is asking two questions. In broad, in broad terms, our two questions are, if, if this is a conflict, who, who's the enemy? And, uh, and the second question is, what's the battle like? What, what does the battle consist of? Um, we dealt with uh, question one last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to try and listen to it if you can. I don't think anyone ever won a battle if, when they didn't know who the opponent was. If you don't know who the enemy is, you, you, you're hardly going to win. And so we were asking last week, who or what are we meant to be standing against? But this week I want to ask the second question. What is the battle like? In other words, what are the two sides in this conflict actually doing? And if this is a battle between God and the forces of evil led by the devil, there's two questions there to ask, isn't there? What, first of all, what is God doing in his world? And how does the devil then attack and undermine what God is doing in his world? What are the two sides doing? What's God doing? And what is the devil doing to undermine that? And Paul brings this out in verse 11. If you've got your Bible open there, he, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, the devil's methods, the devil's approach, the devil's tactics, if you like. The devil is not a kind of impulsive uh, creature, but there is a methodology, a scheme, a tactic behind uh, what he's doing in this great conflict. So in this battle, you don't just need to know who the enemy is, we were thinking about that last week, but also, what is this battle about? How is it being waged? And what are the tactics that happen? And the armour that we look at, starting from next week, with the belt of truth, won't make any sense unless we get hold of the big picture first. I think one easy way uh, for us to think about this big picture stuff is to think about Ephesians as a whole, because this section here is not just a random uh, section, but it's connected to what's gone before. That's kind of the way things work. The six chapters here, Paul doesn't just kind of jump from subject to subject in a sort of random way, and we know that because he says in verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord. So he's been saying things for six and a bit chapters here. And uh, he doesn't get to the end of verse 9 of chapter 6 and say, you're sincerely your good friend, Paul. Thanks for reading my letter. All the best. He gets to verse 9 and he's got a conclusion to make. Finally, in the light of everything that I've said in this letter to you, about all the big picture stuff that's going on and how that's relevant to your lives, where you are. Finally, in the light of all that, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power so that you will be able to stand. So what he's been saying in Ephesians, he's been telling them all about what God is doing in his world and in their lives. So if we want to know what standing looks like, then we're going to have to grasp some of the big themes in this letter and uh, so we're going to answer this question first. What is God doing? Let me give you a little context for this first, which we can overlay Ephesus on. Um, Ephesians is such a cosmic book. We were saying last week, Paul's vision 
the thing that really strikes you when you read Ephesians is the, is the breadth and depth and height of Paul's vision. He is not just thinking about Ephesus here. His vision is like a cosmic, wide vision. And um, he, he's, he's really picking up on some big themes. It's very interesting. Uh, our children have been on camp this week. And um, I picked Emma up yesterday from Mid-Wales. I think it's in Wales, isn't it? Just on, well, just on the border of England and Wales. I think we were in Wales for about ten minutes. And they've been looking at the book of Ephesians. I didn't know that before they went. So Emma came home with a little uh, study booklet. And the title for their week was God's Big Plan for Christ's New People. What a great summary of Ephesians that is. God's Big Plan for Christ's New People. Back at Christmas in our carol service, I showed a diagram that looked, if, if you think of that arrow as time, I showed a diagram that looked something like that. Do you remember it? If this is time, the very beginning, God created, and the Bible tells us, uh, Lisa read some of the verses from Genesis chapter 3, that into God's good world, evil uh, entered. There's a, there's a huge fall. Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebelled against their maker. And uh, history, if we think of time, history in a way, the story of redemption is uh, that centres in the cross is, 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 the, is what's going on in God's world. God, that, that creation and fall and this story of God recreating uh, a new, one day a new creation being consummated. So when Paul writes to these believers in Ephesus, he has all this backdrop in mind, but he relates it to them. This is a very pagan city. We're told elsewhere in the New Testament that some converts in Ephesus uh, publicly burned on a big bonfire all of their witchcraft books. So you can imagine being in the church in Ephesus with these people who have become Christians who were formerly properly immersed in the occult, witchcraft, sorcery. And they become Christians. They burn all their books, very expensive books, and they begin to follow Jesus. Um, imagine being in the church full of converts who've been involved in witchcraft prior to becoming Christians. Well, let's um, just flip back to chapter 1. And I just want to make uh, a couple of preliminary points uh, with this backdrop in mind. Uh, the first thing that I want you to notice is in verse 10 um, of chapter 1. Um, Paul says, well he says in verse 9, God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. With this diagram in mind and with those words in mind, one statement that one preacher summarised this passage with was this, and I think this is memorable. The idea that evil always disintegrates God's good world. 
But Christ is the one who integrates and unifies and puts what is broken back together. Evil disintegrates. Christ integrates. Did you notice what Paul said there? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head. Integration. Where there's evil, things fly apart. When Jesus comes onto the scene, he brings what is broken back and puts it back together. And so the whole story of creation is moving towards a fulfillment that centers in on Jesus. The second thing I wanted to say is that this is something that God has planned to happen. It isn't random history that is just happening, but God has planned this. Just look with me through chapter 1 here. He says in verse 4, For he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. God's plans were conceived before creation even happened. Um, He talks about, uh, the end of verse 4 into verse 5, In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one he loves. Uh, He talks about the mystery of his will. We read that in verse 9. His plans, his will, his purposes. He talks about his plans coming to fulfillment one day in the future. In verse 11, he repeats the idea of Christian believers being chosen, predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You couldn't have a verse that was about planning any more than that, could you? This is kind of God, even before creation even happened, knowing what was going to happen and planning for that eventuality. That is why, by the way, what Lisa read to us from Genesis, in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell, that is why God could promise them, even there, as evil comes into the world, that one day someone would come who would crush the serpent's head. Because God, that was part of God's plan. This is the whole story, redemptive history. I think it's worth us saying that no one is more important in this story than Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lord, towers over human history. He is not just a prophet. He isn't just another leader. He isn't a charismatic teacher who just got lucky. Jesus is the Lord, the creator. The story is about him. It is for him. It's all wrapped up in him. What is interesting about that, we were thinking about this last week, is that the devil wanted to grasp the throne and was cast down. And Jesus, who owns the throne, was willing to come down. And he conquered by dying. And the result is that he is highly exalted. And this whole story is about everything being brought, integrated, put back together in Christ. That, that is a very cosmic vision, isn't it? He's not just talking about Ephesus, but that is wide and uh, long and deep. Now, as Paul applies this to Christians in Ephesus, uh, I think as we just do a little crash course in Ephesians, he has three main ideas in mind. And uh, as we go through uh, this morning, uh, this, after, this morning, this afternoon, what all this means for them 
is, is this. They have a new status. They are part of a new community. And they have a completely new set of values. They're, they are caught up in this story. Their status has changed. Their relationships have changed. And their behaviour has changed. And that, that is a good overview, I think, of Ephesians. Some of you have been looking at Ephesians this week elsewhere in Keswick. And um, maybe you've touched on some of these themes. Chapter 1 and t- into chapter 2 is all about their change of identity. We'll, we'll come on to these. Chapter 2 is all about unity, relational unity. And chapter 3, 4 and 5 are all about behaviour. Now, if that is what God is doing in his world, what is it that you think the devil will seek to attack and undermine? He will seek to confuse you about who you are, identity. He will seek to undermine your relationships and cause division and for things to break up. And he will seek to influence your values and behavior. If, that, if those three themes are what God is doing in his world, with the backdrop of this big story, if the devil's at work in this world, they're the three things that he'll target and attack. So let's, um, we're going to have a lot of think about those three things very briefly, and then we're going to think about how the devil attacks these things. And that'll give us a clue as to kind of fight we're involved in. Let's think first of all about new status. There's four things. Um, if evil disintegrates and Christ integrates, we could also say evil separates, but God reconciles. Just look with me at verse 18. Um, first of all, uh, Paul's praying for these Christian believers in Ephesus, and he says, he prays that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened so that they would know three things. First of all, the hope to which God has called you. Secondly, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. When it says saints, by the way, it doesn't mean dead Christians. When, that, when Paul used the word saints, he's talking about all Christians. You, if you're a Christian, are a saint. It's not like the traditional understanding of um, saints on stained glass windows. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, if you like. And thirdly, he prays that they would know his incomparably great power. So in terms of status change, three things there in that verse. These people in Ephesus have moved, first of all, from emptiness to hope. They've moved from poverty to unimaginable wealth. It is, uh, Paul uses the word um, lavished. In, did you notice that in verse 8? Um, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. It is like God, it, it, it's almost like a waterfall of kindness that cascades out of heaven and pours down on the heads of his people from poverty to wealth spiritually but also from helplessness to power or to strength these are amazing things that have changed in their status when we get into chapter 2 Paul uh, sums this whole idea up as a status change that is really from death 
to laugh. Look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. As for you, you were dead. What a thing to say in a letter. Imagine that. Dear friends in Ephesus, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. But then he says in verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. He's including himself in that. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. The whole problem with this kind of backdrop of the fall is that we're separated from God and actually live under his rightful condemnation. Dead, not alive, but dead. Paul says, you were dead in your sins, but God made you alive with Christ. Their status has changed. They've been converted, translated from death to life. I suppose when you look at this list, all the things on the left are what we are in our natural state. All the things on the right are what Christ is in his natural state. And um, in Christ, as believers, you, you have hope, wealth, strength, and life. There's a couple of things that have um, just stirred my own heart uh, during this week, I suppose, and caused my own joy to to rise and um, just look with me at verse 4 in chapter 1 Paul says for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight sometimes different parts of verses strike you don't they and it just struck me do you ever feel like you're worried about what other people think What an amazing thing for Paul to say, God has chosen you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in whose sight? In his sight. And it kind of strikes me, what does it matter what other people think if in his sight I'm blameless, holy and righteous because of Jesus and his death and resurrection? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? In his sight. Do you wonder what God thinks of you? Well, here, Paul says, these people, God has chosen you before the world was even created to be righteous, holy, blameless in his sight. It's incredible. The other thing that struck me just during the week is in verse 5 there, it says, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. And then there's just a little phrase, in accordance with his pleasure and will. That's never struck me before, that he, it, it pleased him to do it. Does that strike you, that God's glad to save you? Isn't that amazing? In love he predestined. He, he comes along and says, these dead, poor, sinful creatures, rebels really, I'm going, to trans- I'm going to give them life. I'm going to adopt them into my own family. I'm going to become their father. They're going to be mine forever. Do you know what? Do you know why? Because it pleases me. <laughs> what, a, what a great thing that is. 
Do you ever ever think that God is kind of miserable? What a thing that it pleases God to save you, to forgive you. He's not like sitting there grudging like a tight-fisted, stingy, you know, oh, go on then, I'll do it. You twist my arm right on my back. No, the expansive, generous, lavish generosity of God, according to his pleasure and will. God can do whatever he likes. Think of the things that God could choose to do that would make him happy. We, we, the, the, the possibilities would be endless. But it, it pleases him to save sinful people. Well, those two things stayed in my heart. Anyway, in this week, it's good for us to think about that, isn't it? <coughs> Let me ask you a question now. But this is a little digression, just for a minute. How does it happen then that someone moves from one domain, if you like, to the other? What had happened to these people, some of them involved in witchcraft, sorcery? What, what happens for a sinner to be saved? What, what goes, what transaction has to take place for that to happen? How do you move from death to life? How do you know that you're alive spiritually in Christ? What does Paul say? I just want to point out um, what Paul says here. Verse 13, chapter 1. He writes to them and says, And you, you also... You Ephesians also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the end of the story. And the redemption of those who are God's possession. How does it happen? You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. So the picture here is of a world in captivity, broken by sin, enslaved and dominated by it. Blind, existing but not really living, not in a relationship with God. And then someone comes along and speaks and says, get up, you're free. They heard the word of truth. Preaching is like a town crier ringing a bell. You know those old town criers, oh yeah, oh yeah. But imagine a town crier ringing his bell in a prison and saying to all the prisoners in the prison, they're all in prison, and the, and the town crier goes, oh yay, oh yay, you're all free. Your guilt has gone. Your debts are paid. God is for you, not against you. You can get up, the doors open, and walk straight out. That is the word of truth. Preached, proclaimed. Take your hope. Grab hold of it. Take God's riches that he offers to you. Take his power and love. Be renewed. Be alive. 
It's proclamation, isn't it? What happened? You were included when you believed the word of truth. You grasped it and entered into it and you got up and enjoyed it. It's the same in chapter 2 and verse 8. What does Paul say? For it's by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. I don't know anything more simple than that, do you? God sends his preachers into a world full of people who are condemned, slaves, and he says to them, you're free. Jesus has set you free. Get up. Believe the word of truth. And that's what had happened to these Ephesians. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the good news, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal. How does someone get translated from death to life when they believe the gospel? Paul once was in prison, wasn't he? And, um, and there was an earthquake at midnight and the, the jailer thought all the prisoners had escaped and he was about to kill himself and fall on his sword. And Paul shouted and said, don't worry, we're all still here. And he couldn't believe that they were still there. And I suppose he just like looked death right in the face. And it's, I don't know, it convicted him. And he shouts out to Paul, what must I do to be saved? What did Paul say? You need to go to university and learn how to be a good Christian. You need to... Do this or do... No, what did Paul say to him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith. Faith. New status then. New status. Death to life. That's what had happened to these guys. What is it that the devil will attack? Well, he'll confuse you on that very point. Who am I? Who are... The devil will always seek to sow dart. We'll come back to that. New relationships was the other one, wasn't it? Evil alienates, but Christ unites. Have you ever wanted to join a club that you couldn't get into because you didn't qualify somehow? What about wanting to be in a group of friends, but they exclude you and you feel alienated, let down? You feel like an outsider. Well, the gospel is amazing because it's not just about people being reconciled to God, but it is also about God reconciling people to one another. We haven't got time really to go into it in detail, but in verse in chapter two and uh, verse twelve, this is this is a religious issue. But Paul writes to these people and says, "Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. You were outside the club. And the people who were in it wouldn't let you in because they thought they were better than you. And what does Paul say in verse 13? But now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. I'd love to spend, there's another, there's another ten sermons in that really. 
Jesus comes into the world and by his own death he draws people to himself. He, he, he takes the sting out of the rules, the law that would condemn us. This is the problem with religion, isn't it? I, I remember a friend saying to me, you know, I always thought the Bible was just a book of rules and if you keep them, you'll be okay and if you don't, you won't. Well, that's what people think. And uh, some people think, I can keep the rules so I'm better than the riffraff. And the riffraff think, I can never keep the rules and they're all snooty, so I give up. But Jesus kind of destroys the barrier between those two extremes. Actually, we're all sinners. But in his death, he pays our debt to the law. The law we can't keep. And draws people to himself. The only door to this club, if you like, is Jesus. And if you come in faith to him, then you can be part of this new nation. And the thing that qualifies you is not your religious superiority, but Christ in his death. And that is what joins people together. We, that is why, as Christian people, we can never lord it over one another because the entrance into this is the same for all of us I'm not better than you I have to come in the same way as you and you're not better than anyone else we're all sinners who need the same saviour and that is a great leveller isn't that no one of us can say to another there's no room for you here because Jesus is the way in new values Evil enslaves, but Christ liberates. What are the implications of all this? Well, you've got a new status, a new community, and a new set of values. We don't have time to dwell on all of this, but um, uh, Paul says in um, chapter 4, I urge you then, in the light of all this big story, big cosmic stuff, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He's not saying there's a debt to pay. What he's saying is, just think of the glory that is yours. And just come and be what you really are in Christ. Don't waste your life in a mire of triviality or drifting. Come and be what Christ has called you to be. And then he gives a few contrasts. We don't have time to dwell on all of these, but here, here they are, if, if you make your notes. Chapter 4, verse 13. Don't, don't be an unstable child, tossed about, but a mature adult. Chapter 4, 17. Don't be enslaved by your old life, but put on the new one. Chapter 5, verse 8. Live in the light rather than the darkness. And in chapter 5, from verse 21. Don't be proud, but live in humility. Submit to one another for Christ's sake. These are great themes and uh, we could uh, dwell on all of them some more. My, my point is that this is what God's doing in the world. New identity, new relationships, and a new set of values or, or behavior. Let me um, summarize this. In the words of uh, American pastor Tim Keller, 
This is this sums up the gospel really. This is Tim Keller's way, it's not mine, but Tim Keller says we are more wicked than we ever did believe, but more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever did to hope. At the very same time. Is that a hard tension to hold in your mind? We are more wicked than we ever did believe and yet at the same time more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever did to hope. That's an amazing summary of the gospel, isn't it? I wonder whether you understand that and uh, embrace that. We're asking the question, what does standing look like in a person's life? Where is the battle fought? Your enemy will always seek to undermine your status, your relationships, and your behavior. And he will use every trick in the book to undermine these things. Just hold uh, that thought as we ask the question then. If that's what God's doing, what's the enemy doing? We could spend a long time on this, but I want to be simple as we close now. I shouldn't say as we close because I've got a few more points to make. So I don't think it's like coming in the next like two minutes. As we move to a close, we'll. Um, his tactics are varied. His schemes are varied. And we, uh, I, I remember when I was at university in Birmingham, there was one of the elders in the church there where Jane and I were. He bought me a book by an old Puritan, 1700s. And the title of the book was Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He wrote in the front. I don't think anyone would write a book like that now, but these guys, they were so logical and they, they could count like 37 things that the devil would try to get you to do something. And 37 like antidotes. Don't fall for that one. If you're not going to fall for that one, this is what you need to do. And it, they, they were just so detailed and practical these schemes are many, and we could spend hours and hours and hours. But all of the devil's approaches and methods come really down, in the end, to one category. Do you know what it is? The devil is basically a liar. All of his schemes, all of his plans, all of his methods, really come down to the fact that he is a liar. And this is really important because as we go through the pieces of armour, the first one is the belt of truth. This idea of the devil being a liar and him undermining and attacking you with lies, it it unlocks all of the kind of things that we're going to think about over the next few weeks. The way he fights is by misrepresentation and insinuation. He's been doing it for many years. He's a master at it. He's not necessarily hasty at it either. He will, if he needs to, build fabrications over many years, letting lies take root. And in the end, standing will mean fighting the devil's lies with God's truth. Now, some of you uh, might be thinking, 
I'm never going to fall for lies. I'm far too clever and sophisticated for that. I'm sure you won't be thinking that, but, it, but this, this is subtle and powerful. What about the person who, when growing up, was told almost every day that they were useless and then spent their entire adult life trying to prove themselves in a driven way? That is the power of a lie, isn't it? That shapes the person's whole life. If the person began to believe what they'd been told, does that not shape the whole way they live? What about the person who connects happiness to their status materially? And when those things are threatened, their whole life falls apart. What is that? It is a lie. The power of a lie. And the power of a lie lies in what it promises, doesn't it? We fall for these all the time. My, I, I will be fulfilled, happy and secure when... Dot, dot, dot. We were saying last week that evil is very complex and there's lots of facet to it. But in the end, it, down, it comes down to this. If there are things wrong, either in your grasp of who you are or in your relationships or in your behaviour, ultimately what is wrong will come down somewhere underneath to a lie that is subtle and powerful and has you held. And the whole thrust of this passage, I think, and the whole sense of Ephesians is that if we're going to stand, we need to stand against a variety of lies to be able to spot them, name them, and blow them up with dynamite. Let me um, show you. Oh, there we go. I forgot that one. Two sides to this. There's two subcategories, really. If we say the first category is the devil's a liar, the two things that the devil will do under that in the main are to tempt you and to accuse you. I was watching uh, some boxing on the Olympics the other day. I'm not really into boxing, but I just switched on to see what was on. I was looking for the cycling, really. And these two guys were boxing. And they were talking, you know, left, right. In boxing, they talk, don't they, about... I'm left-handed, so if I was punching, I would punch harder with my right hand. So the idea is that you do a one-two. You sort of hit with the left hand to try and just stun, and then the right hand comes in. And that's the kind of one-two, one-two. This is the way I think this strategy fits together. The devil will tempt so that he can accuse. One-two. Temptation and then accusation. This is the way it works. When, before you sin, this is the idea. It's not that bad, is it? It's only a little thing. And what's more, everybody does it. I'm sure God won't really mind. And even if it is a sin, he'll forgive you anyway, won't he? And before you know it, you've started to have a little parley in your mind like that. On the way in, it's easy. It's a little thing. Do you know what happens? As soon as you then fall, do you know what the devil does? He turns around and says, God, I'll never forgive someone like you. You know you've done that. And he accuses you. 
Before the sin, he makes it look tiny. Afterwards, he makes it look absolutely ginormous. The whole point of that one, two, is to get you to fall so that he can then accuse you and tell you that God could not possibly love you. Does that ring bells for you? The reason I've drawn it like that on the screen is that one side of this is when the, when the devil tempts you, what he's doing is attacking God's holiness. And he's really saying, it's only a little thing. God isn't really that fastidious, is he? But when he accuses you, what he's attacking is not God's holiness, but God's love. What he's really saying is, God wouldn't love someone like you. No, you've done that. There's no hope for you to be forgiven. How can God love someone like you? Temptation and accusation. This is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. And you know the story. The classic passage of how the devil tempts. And I want to... Let, let me just spend... Um, we'll, we'll, we'll perhaps close with this now. Let me just spend uh, a couple of minutes. We'll, we'll go back to Genesis 3. And let, let me just make a couple of points about this. When, when, when the devil came to Adam and Eve in the garden... He lied. Temptation and accusation. And let let me just say this in two different ways. Before he'd even asked them to do anything, I want you to notice the first lie comes right at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. It's right at the beginning. Page 5, as you know. The first time the devil comes, he said to the woman, Did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? Now that is a lie. What God had said is, you can live in my world and you can eat anything. But I don't want you to eat from one tree. But the devil said, did God really say you mustn't eat from any tree in the garden? See what he did there? He makes a little lie. He just slightly twists what God had said. Do you know what he's doing there? He's he's planting a little seed of doubt. And he's slanting things. Let, let me put it this way. The devil does not come to Eve and say, Do you know what? isn't it fantastic that God's given you such a fantastic garden to live in? You must be over the moon. He, he's given you, he's just like lavished his kindness on you, hasn't he? I mean, it's a bit hard to understand why he said you can't eat from that one tree. But that pales into insignificance, doesn't it? Compared to what he has just poured out on you. You must be thrilled. No, what he does is he pinpoints the one negative. He doesn't accentuate the positive. He pinpoints the one negative that God had said, one small thing. There's no note of thankfulness, no acknowledgement of God's goodness. He just focuses on the one small thing and he puts a slant on it that begins to kind of raise the question of, actually, yeah, that's not fair, that is it? Poor me. Poor me. Wow. The first step in sin is a lie that makes you feel like life's unfair. Poor me. 
I deserve better than that. There's no note of thankfulness. There's no appreciation for all of the other things that God may have given. But there's a little focus on the one thing that's really disappointing. Other people, that's not fair. Poor me. That soil is the soil that temptation and sin grows in. The second thing that the devil does, Eve corrects, but she doesn't quite get it right. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you mustn't eat from the tree or touch it. God hadn't said that, so she's already falling slightly from the line, making God's command worse than it actually was. But in verse 4, verse 5, God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What the devil does next, and this is a lie, is he insinuates that God doesn't have your best interests at heart. So already he's thinking, poor us. Now she's thinking, God's pulling the wool over our eyes. And what the devil's doing is he is suggesting to Eve that if you obey God, it will limit you. It will limit your horizons. And actually, what you need to do is disobey him, and that is the path to true fulfillment, freedom. If I said to you today, the best way for you to find fulfillment and reach your true potential is to submit your heart to your maker and obey him fully, joyfully and unreservedly. I wonder what you would think. There might be a little look in your eye that said, oh, I'm a bit suspicious about that. I might try and live a bit first. And then, when I've tried other things, then I might obey God unreservedly. That lie is the lie that's going on here. Jesus interests me, but he's not really my joy. He might be a way to be happy, but there could be something else. I don't want to miss that. And if I obey God, it'll limit my joyfulness. That is a lie. 